Hey church, my name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Grateful to get to open up God's word with you. So please meet me in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We're continuing in this great book of the Bible. If you uh, remember that kind of area of the scriptures, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you get to Acts and you get to Romans. Um, and if you get to First and Second Corinthians, back to the left. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, I'm going to read this verse for us, pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll go from there. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Pray with me. Father, we thank you as always that you are a God who speaks that you are a God who reveals himself, who, who discloses the truth and beauty of your character to us. And so help us, Father. Help us to marvel. Help us to glory. Help us to worship you for who you are. As you're so faithful to do what you're about to do, when we come to your word, although mediated by these screens, as we gather as your church, you are so faithful to say, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I have accomplished. This then is who you are, my children. You speak directly to us about yourself and about us. And so we are just eager, Father, may we be eager to hear from you. We echo what we know your disciples said to your son, where else are we gonna go? You've got the words of eternal life. And so here we are, Father. I pray for my brothers and sisters who feel this overwhelming pressure and pain, conviction, Father, uh, struggling and pain, would you comfort them? Father, in their affliction, would you comfort them? And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are comfortable struggling with empathy or compassion or caring about what is taking place in our world, whether it be COVID or racial injustice, protesting or something else, Father, just going on in their families. Father, I pray that in their comfort, would you afflict them? Would you reveal sin? God, what a God you are that through the very same word, you afflict the comfortable and you comfort the afflicted. And so, Father, as your church, as you do that so graciously, would you bind us together by your spirit for the purpose that you have us together, for the purpose here in Chicago, for the purpose in each of our neighborhoods in this northwest side of the city. All over the world, Father, we ask that your will would be done. And so we thank you that you promised to do all of this and so much more through your word. So we are eager, Father, to hear from you. We pray, we ask, we, we implore you on the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Hey, we're coming to uh, a vital verse today, a vital portion of uh, Romans, perhaps one of the most memorable verses in all of Romans as we come to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Certainly within Paul's address to Rome, few words rise above the memorability uh, or the memorable nature, rather, of this particular verse. Perhaps in chapter 8, we could find 
um, some words that are on par, but to be sure, these words that we find are incredibly familiar, incredibly powerful. In fact, this was the first verse that we have been memorizing together as a church through Romans. And so uh, with that familiarity or with that a power that these words have, it, it can often be the case that we're so familiar with them, we don't understand them. That, that familiarity can trick us into thinking that we know what is actually taking place with those words or in that idea. But the more we think about it, I think the more we realize that maybe we don't fully understand them. And, and so that's what we need to take some time to do, that Paul has now concluded his greeting or his introduction. Um, and then he begins to communicate this longing at the uh, in the middle of chapter one. He said that he is longing to be with the people in Rome. He's longing to be with them in person, which we are incredibly familiar with right now, I imagine, that we long to be together as a church family, to be in person with one another. And in the ways that we long to worship together, Paul understood this, though his distance was not because of a pandemic. It was because of other works of ministry. It was because of imprisonment. He was kept for many reasons we are unaware of. That, that despite all of that, he was eager. He longed to be with them. And in verse 15 tells us, look at, look at it with me. So move your eyes just up one verse. It says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. He, he longs to be with his readers. He desires to be close with them because he wants them to know the gospel. He is eager to preach the gospel. And so this eagerness and this longing lead us to verse 16, which makes it worthy of deep consideration. Romans 1 verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll consider this verse in, in a few different sections, but first, we should notice, especially in its juxtaposition with this longing and eagerness that Paul states what may be construed as the obvious, that Paul states a very obvious thing, that he is unashamed of the gospel. You see, verse 16 is meant to explain verse 15. In, in other words, that transitional word for, if you notice that in the beginning of verse 16, is meant to connect the two. It's meant to explain the eagerness or the reason why Paul would be so eager to come and preach to the men and women in Rome. And so it's, it's like what he is saying when, you look at, when we look at these two verses in tandem. It's like he's saying, I'm eager to be with you to preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. See, this is his logic. This is his motivation. This is what Paul's going to give us. If you want to know why is he so eager? Why does he long so much to be with these people? It's because he believes, he trusts, he has experienced that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So it's easy to see that Paul is not only unashamed, but he is completely bought in to this gospel. He's completely bought into the good news of Jesus. He is the opposite of ashamed. In fact, he glories in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul believes this gospel. He preaches this gospel. He loves the gospel. This is remarkable. His affection for the gospel and for the Lord is remarkable because when we look at Paul's life, when we look at his story, it seems over and over and over again, Paul is given reason to be ashamed of the gospel. He's confronted with so much suffering and challenge and difficulty we could go through acts as we spent a couple of years doing, and we would see story after story of ways in which the gospel was incredibly costly 
for Paul. And so if, if anyone would be a candidate for being ashamed of the gospel or reticent towards the gospel and its implications, it may be the Apostle Paul. In fact, we, we can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn, turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Move to the right through 1 Corinthians on into 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. See, Paul will summarize the costly nature of his gospel ministry here. He'll help us to see how many different ways and places and sacrifices and pains and sufferings he went through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received uh, at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. Don't you love that? After that whole list, he goes, other things. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul has suffered greatly for the sake of and on the account of the gospel. See, all of these things that he has cataloged here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, even in writing to the Corinthian believers in the first century, is a suffering for the sake of the gospel. So let's be honest. If anyone could have been ashamed or, or embarrassed or just hesitated a little bit, pump faked in the paint, was just a little bit cautious as it related to the gospel, it may have been Paul, but he wasn't. He says, I am not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the gospel. The word ashamed is really, in that particular context, to bring shame. To bring shame upon. So in the Bible, shame can be understood in a couple of ways. First, shame is that feeling or experience that we go through as it's explained in the scriptures when we have been sinned against. We are not guilty. We are not culpable of a sin, and yet the uncleanness that we feel as a result of those who have sinned against us, that is shame. Secondly, the way that the scriptures describe shame is not just that, that uncleanness that we feel and experience from being sinned against, but it's also when sin moves from the guilt of what I've done to the guilt of who I am. When, when sin becomes embedded in our self-concept, this produces shame. In, in, in other words, th that guilt is saying that I've done wrong. Shame is saying that I am wrong. Uh, professor and author Brene Brown explains that shame is the most profound master emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough. She, she goes on to say that we, when we are ashamed, we believe that we are unworthy of both love and belonging. See, Paul's story of salvation and calling is centered in many respects around this idea of shame. See, as an opponent of Jesus, he was shamed by the gospel so much so that he killed 
Christians. And yet it seems as he comes to Christ, as he is confronted by Jesus, the resurrected Lord on a Damascus road in Acts chapter 9, he could not have been more committed or grounded in the gospel. And, and then he gives his life to preach the gospel without shame, without fear. See, it doesn't seem that Paul, anywhere that he goes, finds love or belonging. Nowhere says that he's, he's good enough. Nowhere does he have a place to lay his head, really. Everywhere he goes, he is fighting for his life. And yet, he's not ashamed of the gospel. One who was completely shamed by it is now one who is unashamed by it. And of course, the question we must beg is, how is that possible? Why? So you see, the gospel has actually cleansed Paul of his shame and given him a righteous self-concept. What that means is that in Christ, Paul has found one who is good enough. Paul has found one whose love is true and who welcomes sinners into a kind of covenant belonging. See, Paul has found everything that he is looking for in Christ. He's found all of this in Jesus, in the gospel. And so Paul can endure all this suffering for the sake of the gospel because the gospel has taken away his shame. He is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel has removed his shame. Am I preaching to you yet? This is true for those of us who are in Christ. This does not mean that we will never bout or have a battle with shame. It means that shame will never triumph over Jesus. It means that shame in our story will always be washed away perfectly and infinitely by the spotless and beautiful lamb, Jesus Christ. See, Paul may be stating what is obvious about his life, likely because many who he was writing to in Rome, like you and like me, may be riddled or tempted by shame on a regular basis, particularly shame as it relates to the gospel. See, it was costly. Many people in the lives of these Roman readers would have probably looked down at them, thought they were foolish and silly, their family and friends for believing and trusting in this Jesus. Gentile and Jew would have seen the risk and the cost of living for Christ in the sake of an incredibly contentious and lascivious kind of honor culture that was Rome. And so Paul writes essentially from the beginning here in Romans 1 verse 16 to reaffirm reality that the gospel does not bring shame. The gospel takes our shame away. Therefore, you could say I'm ashamed of the gospel. Okay, so the gospel doesn't, doesn't bring shame. It takes it away. The gospel removes the belief that I am not lovable, nor am I worthy, that, that my sin is insurmountable and that the effects of sin against me uh, are, are beyond healing. And so, so how does it do this? That's when we need to take some time to consider. How does the gospel remove all of this shame and bring belonging and love and purity and holiness? How, how, how does this take place? Look again at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. So if you're still in 2 Corinthians, turn back to the left. Again, Paul writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God. It is the power of God. The gospel takes away our shame because the gospel, hear this church, is power. The gospel is power. 
Paul uses this transitional language for again here as another way of communicating his logic. So the reason he is eager to preach, preach the gospel in, in Rome is because he is not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason that he is not ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is the power of God. Let's, con let's consider this. The gospel first is the power. The go gospel rather is power. Paul loves in, in his writing to compare the efficacy of words and that of power. He told his readers in 1 Corinthians, and I was with you, he said, in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He goes on later in chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians to say, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in, say it with me, power, in power. For the kingdom of God does not rest in talk, but in power. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is power. Power, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, which is demonstration or a demonstration of the spirit. Power, which is grounded in redemptive faith. Power, which is the fullness of heaven coming to earth in the form of the kingdom of God. The gospel is power. Paul also wrote to the Thessalonians. Paul said, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in, say it with me, church, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is power, power which shows up in love, power which brings conviction of sin, power is revealed, that is revealed within church community. The gospel is power. The gospel has substance and it bears eternal capacity for change and transformation. In, in other words, what we're saying is that the gospel is not words only. Words are not unimportant, they are simply limited. The gospel is not advice. Advice can be helpful, but it is not supreme and authoritative. The gospel is not a philosophy. A philosophy may bring a kind of comprehensive clarity or understanding or consistency within your worldview, but it doesn't arrest the heart and make us new. Nor is the gospel a religion. Religion provides structure and law, but it is ultimately hopeless because we are not given the power, the ability the authority to obey the word and the law and the structures that God lays out for his people. See, the gospel we are told in Romans 1 verse 16 is power. It is not words. It is not advice. It is not philosophy. It is not religion. The gospel is power. Specifically, the gospel Paul understood was the announcement of this reality that Jesus is Lord, and an announcement of power that would have gone directly against the powers of the day. Caesar is put on notice. Kings are put on notice. Authorities are put on notice when the proclamation of the gospel goes out that Jesus 
is Lord because his lordship is not merely words. He demonstrates his lordship in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death, in his literal burial, in his victorious resurrection, and in his authoritative ascension to the right hand of God where he sits rather and rules and reigns to this day fully God and fully man. So let's be clear. The gospel is not an impersonal force. It's not a nebulous power. It is not an unpredictable and random energy. It is the power of God. Notice again in verse 16. It is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. This idea of the power of God is consistent and demonstrated throughout the entire Bible. In fact, the power of God is so much part of the backdrop of the character of God throughout the scriptures that it's nearly impossible to summarize. And yet at the same time, it's essential for us to consider and understand. So as Martin Luther explained, but the power of God cannot be determined and measured for it is uncircumscribed and immeasurable beyond and above all that is or may be. On the other hand, he says, it must be essentially present at all places, even in the tiniest tree leaf. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 62, 11, power belongs to the Lord. And as we consider the whole of scripture, the understanding of God's power goes well beyond this, this possession of an all-encompassing ability and authority. It's also near. It's also close. It's also intimate. See, his power is over us, but his power is also within us. His power is personal, and yet it's eternal. It's invisible, and yet it's limitless. It is resting upon his people who believe in him, and it is within his people who have been convicted of sin and transformed by the renewal of our mind through the work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. See, we see this in the life of Mary. See, Mary was told by the angel that she would conceive and give birth to a son. And when she asked, how is this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God will overshadow you. Jesus told his disciples they would receive power and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Paul told his Corinthian readers that the power of Christ was upon him even in his weakness, and his frailty, and his exposure and vulnerability and his suffering. See, are you with me in this? God's power is unmatched, not just because it is over us, but also because it is graciously bestowed upon us by his spirit. This is salvation. Salvation is the presence of God's spirit in the life of a contrite and broken sinner who has been brought back to life by the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's the power of God. Paul is saying this power of God is at work, is a work rather of God, which produces salvation. That is, we are rescued from the grip of sin and death and saved into the arms of our Heavenly Father. We are saved from something and we are saved for something. That's how powerful the power of God is. This happens because Jesus pays the price of sin and dismantles the power of Satan's sin and death. It is both personal and 
cosmic. It is a work done for the human heart, but it is also done for the entire cosmos. The lordship of Jesus is true in our own hearts, in our own minds, but it is also true over all things and times and places and peoples and galaxies. See, this is why we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel has removed our shame, because the gospel has defeated darkness itself. The gospel has dismantled the principalities and structures of sin of this dark and evil age. The gospel church is the power of God. So if the gospel has taken away our shame by the power of God, the the question we must wrestle with, the question we have to face is, why is it then that we still battle shame so much? Especially shame as it relates to our faith, as it relates to our Lord, as it relates to the gospel itself. Well, let's not forget. I think this is really hopeful. Paul is not saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel because no one in Rome was struggling with it. He was saying it because he knew they were. He was saying that we can have confidence and not be ashamed of the gospel because he knew that we would wrestle by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that we would wrestle with shame, shame as it relates to the gospel. In fact, this is more precisely revealed when Paul writes to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. Hear this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed." For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul instructs Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel, not be ashamed of the Lord, and instead, hear this, to share in sufferings. Paul seems to be comparing in 2 Timothy the difference between being ashamed of the gospel and and glorying in it is our willingness to share in suffering. This, of course, is true because the story of the gospel is the willingness of the Son of God to share in our sufferings. Therefore, to, to be ashamed of the gospel is to avoid the suffering and cost of the gospel. And to be unashamed of the gospel is to be willing to walk through the sufferings that come as a result of believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, following and obeying in the Lord Jesus. You see, the power, this power of God is revealed in the exact opposite direction that I think we would often expect or suppose It is not a power which reassures self and the strength of my own character, the strength of my own resolve, my own resilience. It actually reveals our brokenness. 
This is not a power that builds up my ego. It is a power that tears down self-reliance. This is not a power which manifests in self-glory and independence. This is a power that leads to you and I dying to ourselves on a daily basis and being raised to new life. This is not a power of achievement and self-authority. It is a power of self-denial. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is a power that will necessarily lead to suffering in this life. This is a power that will necessarily lead to suffering in this life. So can I be straight with you because I love you? And I want us, by God's grace, to understand this, especially in the days that we face right now, in our current cultural moment. See, I think this is one of the primary reasons that we are ashamed of the gospel, because we don't want to suffer. We don't want to go through pain. See, we understand that to be committed to the gospel, we've heard enough of the gospel, we've read enough of our, our Bibles to know that to be committed to the gospel, to be committed to obedience and a kind of hope of this kingdom that is here but not yet, that, that is present but not yet fully realized. We know that to live with that kind of ethic, that kind of ideal, that kind of vision and that kind of faith is to be ridiculed. It's to be looked down upon in this life by our colleagues, by our friends, by our neighbors, by our family. We know that the gospel is earthly foolishness. We understand that to lean into the God of the Bible, into God's word and relationship with him in the middle of our own bout with sin and shame is incredibly risky. That's what vulnerability is, right? It's, it's this, this openness, this exposure to meaningful risk, as Andy Crouch says in his book, Strong and Weak. See, so we, instead of doing that, instead of being exposed and living exposed in light of the work and message and power of the gospel, we begin to trust in powers that we believe will alleviate discomfort rather than trust in the gospel and the power of God that will dismantle sin. Hear this. We begin to lean in and be drawn towards powers which we believe will alleviate suffering or, or grant us earthly, physical, emotional, or even spiritual comfort. We, are, we gravitate towards trusting in those things and we move away from a kind of power that actually dismantles sin. It's a way of being pacified in our symptoms but not getting down to the actual root of the problem. See, we have a sinful tendency to trust in powers which promise comfort immediately, but cost greatly eternally. Instead of trusting God's power, which costs immediately, but brings comfort eternally. This is why our shame persists. This is why we are ashamed of the gospel. And so we trust other powers. We trust the power of words. We trust the powers of practical advice. We trust the powers of earthly philosophies. We trust the powers of religion. And in our attempt to deal with our shame, because that's what we're doing, we're trying to deal with our shame on our own. We often only experience, and it only results in more shame. In other words, 
none of these other powers are the power of salvation. They don't save us from anything. They just make the problem worse. No other power is truly power. Only the gospel, my brothers and sisters, only the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And see, all of these sinful tendencies produce more and more shame. And, and then we, we live in this ashamedness towards the gospel, ashamed of God and his power, and we grow deeper in shame. Now, I, I, I don't think that we often think about it in this language that Paul uses of being ashamed, and yet we, we live in a way where we distance ourselves either from the message of the gospel or the implications of living in light of the gospel, believing more and more with each failed power that we are not loved, that we are not worthy, that we do not belong, and that we are never going to be cleansed. See, we know that we are trusting in false powers when after giving ourselves to them, we feel less lovable. We know we are trusting in false powers when after we have trusted in them, we feel less worthy, we feel less belonging, and we feel even more spiritual filth and uncleanness. And it's in that kind of of recurring cycle that shame begins to whisper its greatest and deepest and darkest lie. The lie that God is ashamed of us. That God is ashamed of you. Have you ever told yourself that? My sister, my brother, have you ever told yourself that God is ashamed of you because he's never said that? That's not what the scriptures teach us. This is why it's so important that we go to God's word because often we begin to speak to ourselves and, and act as though we are quoting God when really we are just speaking the lies of the evil one himself. See, we've trusted in these false powers and these false powers have sort of materialized into this faux voice, this fake voice of God that tells us that even God is ashamed of us, but he's not. And how good of news is that today? God is not ashamed of you. For those who are in Christ, God is not ashamed of you. And I've got biblical proof for you. You see, even in the middle of our temptation and belief that God is, is ashamed of us, we hear this word from Hebrews 11, verse 16. He tells us, the writer does, that therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, God proves that he's not ashamed of us by, by moving into the future and building a home, a city, a place, a holy habitation, an eternal dwelling place where there will be no sun because the light of the Son of God will illuminate the entire world. He's prepared that place for you because you are loved by him, because you are worthy in his sight, because you belong with him, because he has cleansed you. This is the power of God that, that, that saves you, that, that welcomes you into this reality. He is not ashamed. He has saved you. He's made you his own. God is not ashamed of his people. What's more earlier? In Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says this, For it was fitting that he, that's God the Father, from whom and by whom all things, or for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Think about that. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the son of the living God, is not ashamed 
to call you his family. Every other power you go to, to try to cleanse you, to try to find belonging, to try to find satisfaction, to try to find peace, every other power we go to, to try to be loved, it will never love you back. But here we're told that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that because he has saved us, because he has freed us, because he's cleansed us, because he's done this work, because the power of the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he is not ashamed to call you his sisters, to call you his brothers. So please hear this, my church family. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are worthy. In Christ, you belong. In Christ, you are cleansed. In Christ, your shame has been washed away because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And because God is not ashamed of us, his gospel power is the most inclusive and most exclusive power ever. This is all a product of the reality that he is not ashamed to call us his people that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family. That's what Paul says next. Look one more time at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. First, notice that the gospel is the power of God for everyone. Elsewhere, Jesus would say, whosoever would come. This power is not for a select crowd based on personal merits, education, niceness, culture, ethnicity, appearance, race, gender. This power is for anyone and everyone. The gospel is shockingly inclusive. Whatever issues you have, whatever sin has persisted in your life, whatever sin you're struggling with today, whatever shame is overwhelming your consciousness, whatever pain or suffering or evil or story, the power of salvation is for you. It's for everyone. And for those who are his, God is not ashamed. Everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. The gospel is so radically and shockingly inclusive. And yet, however, Paul says that, that the gospel, the power of the gospel rather, for salvation for everyone, but notice, everyone who believes. That means the gospel is also radically or shockingly exclusive. Though anyone and everyone can come, we must come and may only come through faith and particularly faith in Jesus. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he said, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him, or you rather you do know him and have seen him. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one because I am the way to the Father. See, yes, the, the power of God can save anyone and does save anyone and everyone. But the way of salvation is always and only 
through Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the power. He is the gospel because Jesus is Lord. It's radically inclusive for everyone. It is radically exclusive. Those who believe in Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel that saved you, that saved me, that can save any of us who call upon the name of Jesus because Jesus is the one who washes away the shame and guilt and sin of this world. Jesus is the one who has this power because Jesus is the one who has done the work, who has lived perfectly, who has died sacrificially, who was buried literally, who was raised victoriously, and who has ascended authoritatively, and right now, in power, rules and reigns with authority over all things, and yet in authority in your heart and in mine. And so, he is not ashamed of anyone and everyone who calls him Lord. That is the power of God of which we no longer have to be ashamed. Heavenly Father, help us in this. Convict us in this. Grow us in this. That we would be a people not ashamed of our Lord, but those who glory in the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what we speak and how we act and how we live, how we love our neighbors, how we love our spouse, how we love our children, how we love one another as brothers and sisters would all be grounded in this power of salvation for all who believe that we would be unashamed of it. And so God, help us in this, equip us in this, empower and embolden us in this by your spirit for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.